All right. Thanks, everyone, and welcome to Redemption Church. My name is Brandy Beamish, and I am a part of this church family along with my husband, Richard. Um, you'll generally see us here right in the front row and ready to go each Sunday when we're here on time. <laughs> um, and we also serve here on Sunday in children's ministries. And um, no, we don't serve in children's ministry because we were just naturally gifted with, you know, handling children, or we're really great and experienced teachers, or because we had some really deep spiritual calling to do it. Um, we just serve there because it's our responsibility to serve. So if any of you were coming here looking for that special calling on what you're supposed to do, Hi, I'm calling you. You're supposed to go serve. <laughs> so after this, go and serve. <laughs> um, so you'll, um, we also attend an RC or a Bible study group here. And if you're looking for any group that's going to help you stay on top of your studies, you should join my group with the Steels because there is absolutely no hiding. <laughs> um, when you've been slacking off with your studies, then when you're in a group that's led by an attorney and a journalist, so. <laughs> All right, so as a local expression of the family of God, we are seeking to embody the gospel in all of life in the Arcadia area. We are one church here of 10 congregations throughout Arizona. We're gospel-centered, outward-focused, and believe that all of life is all for Jesus. Now, I have some quick announcements for you before we get started. First is the men's lunch on Wednesday the 28th at 11.45 a.m. to 1 p.m. Please RSVP on the website. And there's a blood drive on Monday, August 9th, 7 a.m. to 11 a.m. All right, now please stand for the reading of God's word. Nehemiah 10, 28 through 31. <clears throat> the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their nobles, their, their, their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and, and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and, to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Charlotte. You are following in the step, the footsteps of Ben Bear reading that scripture for us. That's awesome. 
Uh, your voice needs to be a little bit deeper, though, if you're going to follow in Ben's footsteps. You're like the anti-Ben bear. Okay, so, which I guess we need, right? Those of you that know him anyway. Sorry. All right, so my name is Frank. Good to see you here this morning. If you're new, we're glad that you are here. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. We have four of them. Uh, I'm generally up uh, front on Sundays about 35 times a year. Uh, Pastor Tyler, who leads worship in the communities, also preach. He's part of the preaching rotation. Uh, we have another pastor named Tyler, Tyler James. He's our family pastor. He's been running around here. Oh, I think he's in the back there. But um, he's also part of the preaching rotation. And then Trey Fraley, also part of our preaching rotation. He's the next-gen pastor. If you're new here, we'd love to be able to get to know you at some point. Uh, we're glad that you're here. Uh, before we get started, uh, first of all, let me just say, please have your Bibles out and turn to Nehemiah chapter 10. It's just going to be really helpful for you to have uh, the scripture in front of you as we reference it, as we work our way through this. Um, the other thing I want to mention is I want to go back to uh, Brandy's announcement about the men's uh, lunch this Wednesday. I want to mention something about that. Um, so this Wednesday, we are having a men's lunch, and the speaker is going to be Sandy Schrader. If you don't know who Sandy Schrader is, uh, she is the wife of one of our founding pastors, Tom Schrader. And you've probably heard me mention Tom Schrader a number of times. I'm going to mention him a number of times today. Nehemiah is probably his favorite Old Testament book. So I've heard him teach this book a number of times, so I'm uh, somewhat influenced by it. But um, when Tom planted what, it, what was at the time East Valley Bible Church in Gilbert and is now Redemption Gilbert, uh, when he planted it, he, he had some interesting ideas about how to do ministry, and he kind of did a little, like, you remember, and at least in, when I was in high school, we had something called Backwards Day or Backwards Dance, where, you know, anyway... He decided he was going to occasionally teach the women's Bible studies. So that was kind of interesting. He would go in and teach the women's Bible studies. Um, Sandy kind of has that same energy and juice about her as well. She can come in and, and she could help, I think, uh, the men of this church understand things from a little bit different perspective. I've heard her speak many, many times. Uh, she obviously spoke at Tom's funeral. She was the main speaker there. She's, uh, she's just got some great insights. I would encourage you to do whatever you can to sort of change your schedule and be here for that lunch and RSVP. Um, there, are, there are a few speakers, in my opinion, that are in Tom's uh, league, and Sandy is actually one of them. And I think you'll be really blessed by being able to hear what she has to say. So that's my pitch on uh, uh, Sandy. Uh, we have been going through the Old Testament book of Nehemiah about the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile had ended. This is the eighth week of nine weeks that we are in Nehemiah. And if you were here last week, you know that the, uh, the, the, the chapter we looked at last week, chapter 9, talked about how the people read scripture for three hours and then they worshiped and confessed their sin for three hours. So they had a six-hour church service. And no, that was not unique. That was pretty much the usual deal for God's people uh, back then. And in the midst of that, three of the main things that we talked about were, number one, the importance of confessing our sin and mourning over our sin. Second of all, the importance of remembering uh, remembering our past and being able to learn from it so that maybe we could improve our future, but also remembering the past because of God's demonstration of his character and his faithfulness to his people. That was a big theme in chapter 9. And then number three, the fact that you and I cannot out God's grace. That might be the most important thing that uh, we learned from chapter 9 in Nehemiah. 
And, and actually, one of the things that we need to remember is that we learn that throughout Scripture. Throughout Scripture, one of the main uh, things, if not the main thing that we learn, is that you and I, no matter what we've done, cannot be bigger than God's grace. God's grace trumps everything, and we, and we need to remember that. And I know that just individually, deep down in our hearts, many of us hear that, and intellectually and academically, we read the Bible, and we know that that's true, but deep down, a lot of us still struggle with that and think, yeah, but I'm really the exception to that because God must not know how desperately dark I really am. Trust me, he knows, and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection easily wipes all of that out. If you're worried about being worthy to be able to come to God, just understand this. We're not, but that's the point. We're not worthy, but we should come to him because he embraces us, he loves us, and he wants to save us from our sin. So what we're going to look at today is three chapters. We're going to look at 10, 11, and 12. And, and some of you right now are a little bit nervous. You're wondering if your 12 o'clock lunch reservations are, are going to be realistic. Don't worry. We're not going to read all three chapters. We're going to be doing a lot of summarizing as we go through this. But there are a lot of good details as well. So uh, follow along with me as we do this. Uh, starting with chapter 10. The first 27 verses in chapter 10 is a record, and it's actually a long list of all of the people who not only helped to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem in 444 BC, but also who signed the covenant with God upon completion of that wall. And if you remember last week, one of the things that chapter 9 did was Nehemiah recited the history of God's people. It was a Cliff Notes version of their history, but he went all the way from Genesis all the way up uh, through the, book, uh, the books of First and Second Kings, reciting the history of God's people. And he ended it this way in verse 38 of chapter 9. Because of all of this pointing to God's faithfulness through the years, we make this, uh, uh, because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And so it's God's people's, it's God's people, their pledge once again as God's people to keep his law. And this list that we see in chapter 10 is representative of the entire community committing themselves to God and his word. But then we get to chapter 28 through, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 10 verses 28 through 31, and we get back into some of the narrative, and I'll read those verses that Charlotte read for us. I'll read it again. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses a servant and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our, uh, our Lord and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods on it or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So 
Uh, let me start with that last verse and just mention something there before we get into the nuts and bolts of verses 27 through 31. That last verse that talked about how we're not going to grow any crops every seventh year, nor will we exact any debt. Um, this notion of the Sabbath, this is really important. When we were going through the Gospel of John earlier this year, we had a lot of discussion about the importance of the Sabbath. When we get back into John, um, starting in a couple of Sundays, we're going we're gonna to see that once again. The Sabbath is really important. It's actually one of the Ten Commandments. Um, the problem is, is that people hadn't been keeping that, and we're going to look at that in just a minute. But there was also this sort of Sabbath pattern. By the way, the Sabbath is take a day off once a week, one day out of every seven, take a day off to rest and to worship God. And the point of the Sabbath is that you do that because you have faith that God is going to provide for you the other six days. You need rest and you need to worship God. That's the idea of it. <clears throat> well, also there was this idea of a, a Sabbath every seven years. The land needed rest as well. And if you, you know, sometimes I spend time in Iowa, and so I think I know a little bit about farming because I've driven by some farms, okay? <laughs> but it's interesting how they rotate their crops all the time because the land needs rest. The land actually needs rest. And then this idea that every seven years nobody has to pay their debts for a whole year. You get a year off from paying your debts. Think about that. Isn't that exciting? Yeah, see, just like in the first service, only a couple of you are excited about this. I, it's almost like you're sitting there going, this is a trick question. <laughs> no, it's not a trick question. You just, no mortgage payment, no rent payment, no uh, loan on your car, no, no credit card debt. Some of you are like, I'm going to Nordstrom's right now. Okay, if I don't have to pay it for a year, I'm going to, okay, that, that's the way they live. But the, the idea is this pattern of recognizing who God is, that no matter what we do, he is sovereign. He is sovereign, and that's very important. And that leads us then into the whole point of this paragraph here. And if you read the details of this paragraph, there's parts of it that sound a little bit weird. They're not going to intermarry. They're going to stay away from the peoples of the land. What is, what is that all about? And as you read this paragraph, one of the things that I think that is true about this paragraph is that it sounds like it's... it's uh, Here's a list of all the things that we're against. In other words, it's just a movement away from something. But in reality, it's a movement towards something. And we have to understand that. You can't move towards a good thing until you start moving away from the thing that is getting you into trouble. And that's what's happening here. In the New Testament, Jesus says all the time, repent and be baptized. He doesn't just say repent. He says repent and be baptized. Not only do you have to turn away from your sin, walk away from your sin, but you need to go to the, the thing that completes your life, the thing that the whole point is about. You have to be baptized. You have to come to Jesus. You have to embrace Jesus. You have to make him the Lord of your life. It's the same thing here. It's not just that they're turning away from this worldliness and these cultures that don't share their faith. They need to turn to God. They need to reestablish their covenant with God and to follow his law. That's the problem. So the Mosaic law has 10 commandments. And even if you're not a church person, you know, you've heard about the 10 commandments. But there were two 
major commandment violations that have been going on for decades since God's people had returned from Babylon and Persia from the exile. So this had been going on for almost 100 years. Two of them that were especially being uh, a, a troublesome part for the people. They weren't keeping their Sabbath. They were working all seven days. And, and they were demonstrating that they didn't have faith in God in that regard. And then the second thing is that they were syncretizing and watering down the law, the word of God, and their faith. And Nehemiah uses as an example of this, this idea of intermarrying. What we need to understand is that intermarrying is not necessarily bad. The problem is, is what intermarrying can lead to. And, and uh, let's just acknowledge the reality. A lot of people love to gloss over this and, and think it's novel and cute. But the reality is, is that when you have uh, two major worldviews that are completely at odds with each other, they don't mesh well together, right? And what we're talking about here are two different worldviews. There's the worldview that believes in Yahweh, the creator God, the God who wrote this Bible, whose son is Jesus, and who gives us the Holy Spirit, and a world that disavows all of that. And when you mesh those two things, it might be cute, it might be funny, it might be novel at first, but in the long run, meshing two major different worldviews does not seem to work. Could you imagine, here you go, could you imagine anybody from Fox News and MSNBC getting along? It just doesn't work, okay? And I know those, and by the way, those worldviews don't even really matter. We're talking about a worldview that really matters here, and that's the worldview of who Jesus is, okay? And so what this is talking about is, look, it's not saying don't intermarry. What Nehemiah is saying is that if there are practices or patterns or liturgies in our life that tend to lead us away from our faith in God, tend to water down his word and its truth, if we're involved in those practices, we need to stop and think about maybe doing something else, something different. That's what he's saying, okay? He's not bagging on, on practices. He's bagging on what the practices could lead to, and that's really, really important. And also, in this context, not keeping the Sabbath was also a result of intermingling with people who had different faith systems. They're all working on the Sabbath. They don't even care about the Sabbath. They don't know what it is. And so they have to do that. But keep, keeping the Sabbath is a commandment for God's people. And so you could get ridiculed for not working on the Sabbath by the other people. But the Sabbath is a commandment that is way more important than we realize because it's a demonstration of our faith. The problem, of course, is that when they came back, it was hard, and they realized they could probably make more money and accumulate more resources if they worked on the Sabbath, especially since the unbelievers around them never observed a Sabbath, never took a day off, and so competition sort of demanded that you did that. Now, I want you to, again, think about this in our context. I, I experienced this when I was in the marketplace for, uh, for uh, a number of years. I'm sure many of you have experienced this as well. You get a job, it's a 40-hour-a-week job, and then you get into the job and you begin to realize that the only way you can truly compete in this job is if you work 60 hours a week, right? And that's what happens. And so you begin to work all of those extra hours because that's what the market requires. But God is saying, listen, I'm your great provider. I'm your, the one who is going to protect you and, and give you provision. And keeping the Sabbath and resting and, and, and worshiping me 
is really important to your faith. Working on the Sabbath says to God, I don't believe in your goodness and I don't trust your provision. And so they remind the people of this curse and oath. And, and really what Nehemiah is referencing there is likely um, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 26 or 28, where God says this to his people. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. So what God is saying is there is a blessing if you follow the law, and there is going to be eventually a curse or consequences, negative consequences, if you don't follow the law. Now, I, I, I watched Tom Schrader teach the Bible for uh, a little over 30 years, and it was absolutely magnificent. He's a great Bible teacher. But when I first started watching him uh, teach, I don't know, some of the people in the first service actually remembered this. I don't know if, how many of you are, a very young crowd here today, but do, do you remember those things called overhead projectors? <laughs> and then you had a little transparencies that you would slide across, you know, and you'd have to figure out how to print them on your printer at home and all that. So Tom would teach the Bible with an overhead projector in a bar. Okay, that was kind of what he did. So it was a lot of fun. We were drinking coffee, but it was a lot of fun anyway, okay? So he would teach. And one of the um, books that he loved teaching was Nehemiah, and he, and he taught it early when I was around. And I remember uh, he was teaching on this, and he went to Deuteronomy chapter 11, and he had these arrows. He, he had a slide that had an arrow or a transparency. It said, uh, keep the law, blessing, with an arrow down to blessing. Don't keep the law, arrow down to curse. And then he had an arrow that showed, don't keep the law, blessing. And he said, the problem is, is that this is what we want. God's people for centuries, for millennia, all of us, all of us. Now, you may not admit it out loud. I'm going to admit it out loud. All of us. All of us are trying to game the system. The problem is, is that God doesn't have a system. He's just sovereign. He's creator. He's the Lord. And you can't game God. That's the problem. But all, I, you know, but I got it figured out. I know how to do it. Be careful. Because you can't game God. That's, that is a really big problem. And then Jeremiah 34 speaks to this as well. Uh, Jeremiah 34 is talking about all those who had suffered the sacking of Babylon some um, couple hundred years earlier, the destruction of Jerusalem and the Babylonian exile. Uh, Jeremiah talks about, for the one who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will make them like the calf, the calf that was cut in two and passed between its parts. Yikes. Now, what does that mean? Well, this refers to the first covenant that God made with his people by way of Abraham in Genesis 15. Read Genesis 15, and you can read all about it. What God did with Abraham to prove to Abraham that he was making a covenant with him was that he sacrificed a calf, cut it in half, and then God passed through between the two parts of the calf in order to seal his covenant with Abraham. It was a way of telling Abraham, this is it. I'm sealing my covenant with you and my people. But what he's saying here is that if you don't keep the covenant, you get to be the calf. Yikes. And so what this is is a powerful illustration and metaphor. It's a metaphor of the serious nature of being God's covenant people. 
You don't want to be separated or cut apart from God because you don't show your faith in him. You don't believe in him. And then look at verses 32 through 35, and we'll end with the last little bit of 39 in chapter 10. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the, burnt, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of the Lord our God, according to our Father's houses at times appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of, of all fruit of every tree, year by year, to the house of the Lord. We will not neglect the house of our God. So here's what's going on here. We looked at Nehemiah pressing on the importance in, in the previous paragraph, the importance of um, not seeking after worldliness, but rather seeking after holiness. Don't syncretize your faith. And you need to keep the Sabbath. And now here he presses on the third major problem that they were having, the, the third major challenge that they were engaged in. And that's that people needed to be better about giving to the work of the Lord. And so this is about the importance of worshiping God through tithes and offerings. Now, at Redemption Church, one of the things that we say all the time, because it's true, is that we preach the text. We like to go through books. Generally speaking, we are not topical. Uh, occasionally, we'll do some topical stuff. But mostly what we do is we go through books, verse by verse or chapter by chapter. And so whatever's in the text, that's what we preach. If there's uh, something about biblical sexual ethics in the text, we preach it. If there isn't, we don't. If there's something about giving, we preach it. If there isn't, then we don't. Okay. Well, giving is in this text. Giving is in this text. I, over the course of my 10 years with redemption, I've had a number of people who have asked me, Frank, you rarely, if ever, talk about giving in the church. Why is that? Well, let me qualify what we're talking about here first. When that question is asked, generally speaking, I know that what they're saying is, why don't you talk very often about giving money to the church? And we don't talk very often about giving money to the church because we only talk about it when it's in the text or when there is a desperate need of some sort or some sort of capital campaign. That's the only time we talk about giving money. But in reality, at Redemption Church, we talk about giving all the time because giving is actually more than just money. And by the way, I'm not saying this as a disclaimer so that those of you who are a little bit uncomfortable about money in the church, okay, can feel better about yourselves, but we need to acknowledge we talk about giving every single week. Brandy was up here talking about giving by serving in children's ministry. How many of you serve in some way, shape, or form this church? You're giving. So, so giving is not just money, it's also time and your giftedness. It's your attitude towards things. It's all of those things. But yes, this text here is specifically talking about the need for giving money in terms of tithes and offerings to the church. Okay, And so the offerings of God's people then and today primarily go to take care of three things. God's house, the people who care for God's house, and the poor, the widows, orphans, sojourners, and the oppressed. 
Now, let me say something about this. This is something that Schrader, again, used to talk about. And as a pastor, I've experienced this as well. There are always, you'd be surprised, some of you, there are always idealistic people who believe that the church and those who work in the church should actually do it without money. If you really believed in God, if you really had faith in God, you would do it for no money. You wouldn't have a budget. You wouldn't be taking money. Well, here's just a little revelation and insight for anybody who uh, tends to maybe think that way about this. In fact, there's three revelations and insights for you. Number one, it doesn't work. Number two, it's not biblical. And number three, you first. Can you run your household without any money? Be a very spiritual thing to do. You see, it just doesn't work, okay? But more importantly, that's not what Scripture calls us to. If you're part of a faith community, in other words, if you attend at all, any church, you're called by God and expected by God to give. So there, I preached on giving money. Wasn't that painful? And guess what? It's not that complicated. If you're a Christian, you're supposed to give. Two weeks ago, Tyler Thompson was up here and he was talking about, in, out of Nehemiah, he was talking about the Festival of Booths. And, and during the Festival of Booths, the people were commanded by God to make a booth, right? And Tyler said, listen, sometimes if, if you're a follower of God, if you're a follower of Jesus, sometimes you just have to make a booth because that's what God wants from you. Sometimes you just have to give because that's what God calls us to. So here's chapter 10 summarized. Three items, and they are... Keys, essentials to our faithfulness today. First of all, no syncretism. And I prefer to state it this way. Have a desire to pursue holiness. Don't water down, dilute, or compromise your faith or God's word or the truth of the scriptures or the truth of Jesus Christ. Second of all, rather than pursuing worldliness, that's part of no syncretism, rather than pursuing worldliness, we pursue holiness. So this idea of syncretism, Jesus even speaks to this in... Uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, when he's got his people gathered around him, and he's making observations and teaching. And at one point in chapter 6, he says, look at how everybody's running around, chasing after all of these worldly things, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but they've made gods out of these worldly things. But he says, look around at everybody just pursuing, running hard after the things of the world. And then he looks at his disciples, and he says, but you... Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all of this other stuff will be added unto you. Get your priorities straight. No syncretism. Second of all, keep the Sabbath. Keeping the Sabbath is a manifestation of true faith for the believer. And then number three, give, serve, and support. And I know there are a thousand excuses and reasons not to give, and I've probably heard them all. And there is only one reason to give, and that is because God asks you as a person of faith, to be obedient to his word. So now what happens in chapters 11 through the middle of chapter 12, what happens is there's a discussion of the religious and governmental leadership of Jerusalem and Judah. It lists those leaders and workers, and then it outlines an effort to help repopulate the city of Jerusalem. And so what I'm going to do to wrap everything up is to read the first two verses of chapter 11, and then one final paragraph towards the end of chapter 12. And that'll be how we wrap this up. So chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. 
Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is their capital city. It is also God's city. And it's okay if you don't live in Jerusalem, but the leadership of the people probably should live there because that's the center of government. That's the center of where God wants the leadership to be. And at this point, they needed to repopulate the city of Jerusalem because in the previous seven decades, it had become an undesirable place to live because there was no wall until now. So for seven decades, Jerusalem had no wall. So they had, they had no protection. They had no security. And if you don't have protection or security, it's very difficult to do commerce. And if you can't do commerce, you can't generate income for your family. And so people decided they didn't want to live there. There was no security. It was unsafe to live there. You know, this is just true. And this is just an observation, but it's true. We can't escape this truth no matter how uncomfortable it is. But people living in dangerous places will not long remain in those places if they perceive it as unsafe to do so. And we've experienced in the last 15 or 20 years tremendous gentrification, major urban centers swelling with people because they perceived that it was safe to do. But now in the last couple of years, we are actually experiencing a pretty sharp reversal of that trend because the perception of safety is actually ebbing away. People vote with their feet. You can't get around that. And so they had this challenge in Jerusalem 2,500 years ago for 70 years. But now, with the safety and security that the wall would deliver, the leadership of God's people are asking for 10% of the population living outside of Jerusalem to uproot their lives and move into Jerusalem. And they had some people that volunteered to do it, but they also needed to command some people to do it in order to make their numbers. And they did that by casting lots. Now, what does that mean? What is casting lots? Are God's people gambling? No, again, context really matters. Casting lots or throwing a pattern of sticks down on the ground and then reading the pattern of the sticks under the direction of the chief priests, chief priests by the power of the Holy Spirit was a way in their context that God revealed his will in such matters. And there are a few times in scripture where you see this practice of casting lots. Probably the most um, uh, well-known is in the New Testament in the book of Acts chapter 1 when they had to replace Judas who had committed suicide as one of the apostles. And so they cast lots and the lots fell on Matthias. And then in Leviticus, we see another time when uh, somebody casts lots. Moses is commanded by God to cast lots to decide between the scapegoat and the goat that would be sacrificed, or as Michael Scott would say, the scapegoat. At any rate, the book of Nehemiah was, was not just a time for the rebuilding of the wall, although that was important, but now that the wall is complete, it was a time for the city of Jerusalem to come to life again. And the remainder of chapter 11 describes where those people lived. And then in chapter 12, verses 1 through 26, the priests and Levites are reviewed, they're named, they're recorded, and they're assigned. And it records many priests who served not only contemporarily with Nehemiah, but going back all the way to uh, Zerubbabel, the original chief priest, when they came back from the exile. And again, I, I know that in a way this will sound self-serving, but it's in the Bible, and we're going through this book, so we should talk about it. Here it is. Those doing God's work are recognized in Scripture and should be held in some level of esteem. 
Now, obviously, and, and I think it's kind of a shame that I even have to give this disclaimer, but I know from experience that somebody will ask or they will email me, and so I have to say it anyway, so I might as well say it now and just forego the emails. Okay, here you go. Let me give you the disclaimer. If a priest or a pastor is corrupt, that's a problem. Can I get an amen? Yeah, okay, that's a problem. That's bad. That's an issue, acknowledged. But not all priests, pastors, and ministers are corrupt. Sinners, yes. But there's that step you go beyond sinning to corruption where you're using God's church for your own personal benefit and gain in whatever area it is, financial, sexually, relationally, what network, whatever it is, that is a problem. But not all are corrupt. There are many priests, pastors, and ministers who quietly and humbly do God's work. And remember, just remember, good priests, good pastors, and good ministers don't seem to make the news. You never see a news report that goes like this. Wow, this pastor has never been involved in a scandal. You, you, just, don't, you just don't see that. But it is news when a pastor or a priest or a group of leaders and pastors go down the wrong path. But here's another reason why these men are listed in chapter 12. God is reminding the people that even during their very difficult and unfruitful decades between the completion of the temple in 516 and the rebuilding of the wall in 444, there were men who were faithful and diligent to do the work of God even though it was pretty difficult. So, onward. The wall is dedicated. Verses 27 through 31 of chapter 12. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netaphathites. I practiced for like 15 hours saying that word. I still can't say it. Also from Ben Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. Even the singers didn't want to live in Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. So here's what we see here. Celebration and dedication are part of being God's people. If you're a Christ follower, you are called to many things, but you're also called to celebrate and to dedicate. That's what we're called to. And part of that, a very important part of it, in fact, I would say an essential part of it that we cannot ignore is singing and music. Singing and music with instruments. Instruments that are even percussion instruments. You know, I remember, by the way, it's, in many ways, it's great to be a pastor right now because we're not having the worship wars of the 1990s. Anybody remember that? That, that is an instrument of Satan. No, this is a symbol, and it's all over in the Bible. Okay? What we need to remember is that the methodology is not what's important. It's who we're worshiping and celebrating that's important. 
It's not about your preferences. It's about God being sovereign and us loving him and, and being thankful and grateful for his grace to us. That's a beautiful thing. So last week in the text, if you remember, we had readings and preaching and confessing, and now we have music and singing and celebration. And all the gates get dedicated. They talk about all the gates in verses 31 through 42. I think we need to be a people who dedicate and celebrate just as much as anything else. The rest of chapter 12 talks about the various ways that they celebrated the new wall with different large choirs and, of singers and celebrations. And a reminder that worshiping and praising and celebrating God is something that his people have done for centuries, all of history. So let's review these last four chapters, starting with 10. Chapter 10 reminds us, no syncretism. Instead, pursue holiness. Reminds us that we need to keep the Sabbath, which is a sign of our faith. And it reminds us that we need to give to the house of God, which is faith in action. And then we add uh, the major themes of chapters 11 and 12. Commitment, sacrifice, dedication, and celebration. And then we add to that last week, Chapter 9, which was all about confessing and mourning and repenting of our sin and remembering who God is. You see, these are good reminders for us because ultimately what Nehemiah in this book does, ultimately, the way it's written, is that it's going to point to 400 years later when, when Jesus the Messiah actually comes. It's going to point towards that um, because... Even Nehemiah was not able to keep the reforms in place, we're going to find out. It's going to be kind of tough. But what we need to be reminded of is that now that Jesus has come and we are in Christ and Christ is in us, all of these things come to life. There is the confession of our sin. There is the repentance that we need. There is the sacrificial way that we should be living. There is the relational way that we should be loving, uh, living, loving God and, and loving others. There is the commitment that we should be making, but there's also the dedication and the celebration and the remembering that we should be doing. And that's a perfect way to lead us into communion. It's a perfect way to lead us into communion. Jesus, when he sat there on that last night, before he was betrayed. And he changed that Passover meal into what we know as the Lord's Supper. What he was doing was he was calling us to all of these things. He was calling us to confess our sin, to acknowledge the reality that without God's help, we, we can't do this. But he doesn't stop there. He reminds us that while we need to confess our sin, we also need to turn towards him and then celebrate that we have the answer. We have the answer, and it's Jesus, the Messiah, the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And we give our lives to him, and we are forgiven forever and ever and ever. And we will spend eternity with him. These last four chapters show a picture of how that is all embodied in Christ. It's embodied in Jesus. And so when we come to this celebration of communion, when we stand up and we come and we get the elements, we are saying, I confess that I'm a sinner and I need God, but we are also celebrating and testifying that we have God. In church world, there's a lot of discussion about whether or not you do communion every week. I've been parts of churches where you don't do it every week and redemption does it every week. Seems to me that in scripture, though it's not necessarily prescriptive, it is descriptive that when God's people got together, they broke bread. 
and they had communion. And so we get together and we have communion together. The danger of doing that is it becomes routine. I know that. People have said that. I understand that. The problem is, is that having communion is nothing like routine. It is something that calls us to remember. And not only remember, but to look forward to when he comes again. Jesus broke that bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you. And then he took that cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is for you, which forgives you of all of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me and we are pointed towards when he comes again. That's a great celebration for us. So when we take communion, we have the two communion stations on the side here. You'll get up front to back, come to the center and split off and take your communion elements back to your seat. And when you're ready to take communion, take it. And then when you're ready, please stand and sing, uh, join in singing with the last two songs that were together. We'll also have deacons standing in the wings. If you, if you have a prayer request, if you want to talk about Jesus, if you want to ask questions, we'd be glad to add, answer any questions and pray with you if, if that's something that you want to do right now as well. So let me pray and we'll do that. Father God, we, we thank you for your word and its truth. We praise you that you are willing to tell us everything and not just what you think might make us feel good. The truth of your word is a beautiful thing. And now, as we come to celebrate not just your word, but the author of that word, the sovereign creator God, who loves us and saves us through his son, I pray that we would have this time now, that we would renew our covenant with you, and that we would celebrate that we have you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.
What a beautiful name it is. 
Nothing compares to this. What a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus. Sent from heaven as a ransom, Jesus, you brought heaven down. My sin was great, your love was greater. What could separate us now? What a wonderful name it is. could not hold you the veil tore before you you silenced the boast of sin and grave the heavens are roaring the praise of your glory for you are raised to life again you have no right
beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus Christ my King. What a beautiful name it is, nothing compares to this. What a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus. What a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus. Yes! <laughs> we talked about singers and music today, and then to end with that song, that was just awesome. Amen? Okay, so, uh, a little piece of information before we do the benediction that I wanted to let you in on and encourage you to be here next week. It feels like today should be the end of the book of Nehemiah because it ends on kind of a high note, right? It's not the end. Uh, chapter 13 of Nehemiah is, is one of the more troubling chapters of Scripture, one of the darker chapters, one of the more challenging chapters of Scripture. Uh, Nehemiah does not have a Hollywood ending. It has an ending of real life, and, and the real life ending it has is that even a great leader like Nehemiah could not get the results that only God can get. And the book ends with us looking forward to Jesus coming 400 years later. And so I would encourage you to be here next week for a tough text where there's some explanation and understanding and context, but also there's a great gospel message there because, again, it, it looks forward to who Jesus is. So I just wanted to prep you for it. If you haven't read Nehemiah 13, read it this afternoon or maybe wait till tomorrow morning with your morning coffee, but read it and, and uh, see what we're going to be uh, talking about next week. Okay? And so now for our benediction, our sending out, our prayer, let me read this passage from Ephesians chapter 3 that Paul writes. It's a wonderful blessing. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Go and live all life all for Jesus. We'll see you next time.